While Monocle's House View goes on holiday this week, we're looking back to our series The Golden Age of Aviation, which aired last summer. You can subscribe to the whole programme at monocle.com or wherever you get your podcasts from. Monocle's House View will be back next Monday. You're listening to The Golden Age of Aviation with Breitling. This is a brand new series from Monocle 24, chronicling and celebrating all that was best about commercial airline travel during the 1950s, 60s and 70s. This was an era powered by the advances of the jet age, then later inspired by the advent of supersonic travel that saw civil aviation soar to new heights of efficiency, luxury and romance. And of course, some stunning commercial successes too. There were huge challenges along the way, and this programme tells all those stories, from technological developments and engineering innovators to those fearless individuals in boardrooms and cockpits who literally and metaphorically defined a new era of travel. We'll hear from the people that know the history, the personalities and the legends better than anyone else. We'll bring you unprecedented access as we meet those that flew and were flown, visit the airframe makers who helped to make the globe smaller and sit down to talk with the designers and marketers that sold the world the dream. This is the Golden Age of Aviation with Breitling and I'm Chloe Potter. Today's episode comes from Seattle. The Pacific Northwest city has a long relationship with the aviation industry, particularly as it's where Boeing started out in the early 20th century. To tell the story of the part Seattle played in this heyday of flight, our contributing editor, Tristan McAllister, will be taking the reins for the rest of the programme. And he joins me down the line now. Tristan, hello. Tell us, why are we in Seattle today? Well... Today is the end point of this massive history that Boeing has in the area. And I shouldn't even say end point, but I guess the the journey or the saga continues as we know with the headlines around us today. But Boeing was founded in 1916 in the Seattle area by a man named Bill Boeing. And uh, he was obsessed with technology. He was obsessed with cars. He was obsessed with anything that moved. And he got his eyes on an airplane And the world looked way different after that. He decided he wanted to build his own, and the rest is history. And all of that started in the Puget Sound, which is where Seattle sits. So was there something specific about the location of the city that made it such a hotspot for aviation? There were many things that had to do with it, but I think the big thing was that it was an area that up until that time was pretty isolated. It was at the northwestern corner of the continental United States. It was really only accessible by train or boat, a long sea journey, or if you wanted to sort of trek through the woods, you could get there. But it was a place that needed aviation, I think, to grow. Uh, That was a big part of it. But I also think that the timber industry there had a lot to do with it. Bill Boeing was at first in search of, of large patches of timber. He secured these large pieces of land. He cultivated timber, and a lot of that timber ended up being what built some of the early airplanes that uh, Bill Boeing designed and then uh, manufactured in the Seattle area. 
And tell us, where are you going to visit on the program today? A lot of the places that we'll visit have to do with Boeing, but they aren't necessarily Boeing. Of course, Boeing was a, a big catalyst for what happened in the Puget Sound in the Seattle area. But one of the places we'll go is to Teague. They're a design agency. They're also sort of a branding slash marketing design house that is responsible for things beyond just airplane interiors, which is what we'll talk to them about. We also go to the Boeing Archive, which is a place that houses some of the most interesting and coolest little pieces of aviation history. And we'll talk to the Boeing historian and archivist, Mike Lombardi. We'll also visit the Museum of Flight in Seattle, which is sort of a, a living record of some of the most monumental aircraft designs that ever existed. Not only the ones that were manufactured by Boeing, but ones that were also manufactured elsewhere in the world, the biggest of which, or I guess the most notable of which, was the Concorde. We'll get on board the Concorde. We'll also step on board uh, one of the jets that served as Air Force One when President Kennedy was in office, and also, of course, Nixon, even up to Reagan, uh, that jet served. So there's just a lot of little pieces that exist there in the Puget Sound in the Seattle area that don't really exist anywhere else in the world. Fantastic. Looking forward to it. Thank you, Tristan McAllister. So now we're primed on our destination. It's time to touch down in Seattle. If you stand on the Seattle waterfront and look onto the Puget Sound, it's easy to reckon why this city is for those who love the ocean. How are you? Yes, we do fillet it off for free and ship anywhere in the U.S. Towering over that waterfront, a public market, a rather famous one at that, plays host to tourists from all over the world. They come to Pike Place Market for the seafood, displayed proudly at various stalls. They come to see the seafood fly, literally. Here, salmon take to the air, over the heads of tourists. The air, that's something that has just as much appeal as the sea in these parts. And the flying salmon, hurled by burly fishmongers, seem an apt metaphor for the marriage of ocean and sky that is Seattle. The Seattle-based airline, Alaska Airlines, has even painted one of its jets from nose to tail as a wild Alaska king salmon and dubbed it the Salmon 30 Salmon. That very jet is built by Boeing, which has manufactured aircraft in the Seattle area since 1916. But why here? In the early 1900s, the region was a sleepy outlier at the northwestern corner of the continental United States. It was at the end of rail lines and hardly accessible unless you had a penchant for ocean liners or a wilderness trek through coastal temperate rainforests. But it's those very rainforests that drew a young Bill Boeing to Seattle. He was a bit of a renaissance man in that um, he was, it was a businessman, he was a man of science, a man of action. And so he wanted, he came out this way to the Pacific Northwest to buy timber, timberlands and make his own way, make his own wealth. Boeing historian Michael Lombardi. He loved boats, as a matter of fact, and cars. And while he was here in Seattle, he had heard about airplanes. One look at these modern machines and the young Boeing was sold. He had to have one. So he bought his own and flew it back to Seattle. It wasn't satisfactory. And that's where the Boeing company's story begins. Bill Boeing wanted to build a better plane. He went on to found the brand that would become a key player in commercial and military aviation the world over, 
and factories dotted around Seattle, the company churned out the airplanes that would help the U.S. and its allies realize victory in the Great and Second World Wars. When it wasn't building military machinery, the company would retool its production lines for commercial aircraft. The venerable Boeing 707, 727, 737, and 747 were all developed and built here in the period between 1950 and 1970, literally changing the way the world moved and galvanizing Seattle and the surrounding region as a cradle for the golden era of aviation. To learn more about Boeing and the jets that defined this era, I visit the Museum of Flight at Boeing Field, the place where many airplanes that changed the world took to the sky. Nowadays, the museum plays host to aviation relics. Ted Hutter, the museum's senior PR and promotions manager, takes me aboard some of those jets, starting with Concorde. The first thing you notice about Concorde is how it doesn't look like any other jet you've ever seen. The wings make a delta shape if you look at them from above, and in spite of being born in the early 70s, it still looks like it's from the future. The world knew this airplane and its supersonic three-hour trips from New York to London as the epitome of luxury travel. Once at the jet's cabin door, we see tiny cabin windows. Well, that was mainly a function of the altitude. Uh, structurally, if you're flying at 60,000 feet and keeping a, a, a pressurized cabin, you're pretty much going to have to have small windows to accomplish it successfully. And I think they were very, they're being very conservative with that and for, for good reason, because uh, bad things can happen very quickly at those altitudes. Yeah, of course. And that's one of the, the remarkable, one of the many remarkable things about this plane is that it was flying at speeds that really only military pilots were experiencing at that time and have experienced since then. It was a festive occasion doing something that everyone else in aviation regarded as the most dangerous place to be. <laughs> A predecessor to Concorde was the Boeing 707, a jet that was synonymous with the dawn of the golden age of aviation. On display at the Museum of Flight is one of the 707s that was used as Air Force One, the American president's jet. This Air Force One probably spent more time in the so-called shuttle diplomacy program than it did shuttling the president around. So it was used a lot by Henry Kissinger, for example, flying to Europe during the Paris peace talks, things like that. This is the, the plane that was used to take the three Apollo astronauts on a tour around the world. Inside the jet, a complete galley, the cooking range and an early microwave. They probably didn't have the microwave in 1958. Yeah, but, but it's an early microwave. So we're standing now in the galley, the galley that spans the, the width of the jet. In one compartment, rotary phones, used to keep whatever president or dignitary in touch with the ground. Remember what a feat that probably was in the 1960s. I like the phones, rotary dial phones, which means that at the center of that rotary dial, you've got lots of room for an Air Force insignia or a presidential seal, whatever the case may be. And it was Jackie Kennedy, the first lady, who really pointed that out to her husband, the president, 
and say, we're going all over the world, we, we should have something that looks a little better. It wasn't just the Kennedys, but also Richard Nixon who used these jets for trips. So too did President Eisenhower for trips to Europe. And it even played chariot to Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev on a U.S. tour. Not only were these 707s changing the way the world traveled, they literally facilitated some of the most critical diplomacy of the modern world. Adjacent the museum's 707 is the one airplane that will forever be seen as the queen of the skies, the Boeing 747. This particular aircraft, towering above us, was the first 747 that Boeing ever built, line number one, the very first double-decker jumbo jet. Pushed by Pan Am founder Juan Tripp, Boeing embarked on a design program that many say nearly bankrupted the company. But they went big and took some liberties with the design. Liberties they had to sell to the shrewd and ever-plotting Tripp. It was the, uh, the Boeing company's ability to, to convince him also that this kind of a plane would work, this design, because the other thing that was radical about it was that nothing had ever been this wide before. And we see two stacked high above the, the first floor on this jet, because there's two, of course, as we know, on the, on the 747. But a number of airline logos from across the world, and they were all the air, airlines that had agreed to take this jet. Um, they were the ones that essentially made this program possible because they told Boeing, we're interested. And we see the likes of Sabina, which is a, a Belgian carrier, Iberia, um, the Spanish carrier Air Canada, El Al, of course, out of Israel, SAS out of Copenhagen, um, KLM, Eastern, airlines that don't even exist anymore, um, their marks are on this jet. Exactly, and leading the way on the nose, Pan Am, gone. Still, Pan Am is how much of the world came to know the Boeing 747. The jet became the poster child for golden era flying in the airline's ad campaigns with depictions of spacious forward and upper deck lounges. To this day, many aviation enthusiasts argue that this airplane, with its size, speed, range, and safety, brought jet travel to the masses, laying the groundwork for the commercial aviation industry many of us take for granted today. You didn't have to be a risk taker to be a passenger on these planes. And perhaps that's another way of looking at the golden era of aviation. It's in these years, with these jets, that the world came to trust airplanes in a way they never did prior. One person who thinks we're perhaps looking at this era through rose-tinted glasses is Devin Liddell, principal futurist at Teague, the design agency responsible for some of the most iconic airline interiors in the world dating back to the early days of the jet age. It's easy to look back on this mid-century aviation boom through photographs or flashy adverts and see it as what we should again aspire to, something to long for perhaps, but Liddell thinks this golden label is a bit of a misnomer. I meet him at Teague's headquarters in downtown Seattle. When I hear people say the golden era of, of flying or the golden era of aviation, I tend to recoil a little bit. And the reason, the reason I do recoil a little bit is that it probably wasn't as golden as we, as we think it was. For one, the golden era of flying was extraordinarily expensive. So we take for granted actually how economically available aviation has become and commercial aviation has become to, to so many people. So the golden era of travel was really expensive. The other thing about 
uh, was that yes, while there was more legroom, and that's something that we can probably sort of admit that, that, there, that there was more legroom, that that's actually one of the issues that's sort of in play when it comes to the economics of air travel. So while we have been sort of you know, seeing seat pitches diminish, it has made air travel more affordable. So to sort of put maybe a, a headline around it, one of the reasons I don't like the term of golden era of aviation is that it actually wasn't that golden because it was smoky, for one, <laughs> and to be maybe even potentially a little more controversial, it was also a little bit racist. There actually have been narratives that have emerged over the decades that showed that airlines actually engaged in practices. But nonetheless, I understand why people look at images of, of that era and say, oh, this was a different time. Now, actually, just to, just to spin on, on it here for a second, the passenger behaviors associated with the golden era of travel the actual passenger behaviors were, in my opinion, better than they are now. So we have, we have devolved a bit when it comes to onboard passenger behavior. If, it, if that were not the case, we would not have whole Twitter and Instagram feeds devoted to poor behavior by, by passengers, which occurs onboard aircraft. What can we take from that quote-unquote golden era? I mean, obviously there were a lot of maybe social issues mm -hmm. and, and, and things around it from a perspective beyond design. Mm -hmm. But in terms of what, what that era gave us, in terms of monuments and cabins, in terms of what people could expect from commercial air travel, what, what, what can we bring with us into, into what have we brought and what can we take into the future? I think it's a, it's a fantastic question. I think when you get down to it, if you, if you really distilled it, and even if you think about sort of the phraseology of the golden era of, of travel, I think one of the things that we've, that we've potentially lost is we've lost a sense of wonder. We've lost a sense of wonder and joy that comes with air travel. And that's one of the things I think people react to when they see an, an old image, an old photograph of people dressing up and, and sort of engaged in, in, in that experience. The, the machinations of, of an airport, the machinations of an airport, airline are in some ways very alienating and very almost dehumanizing and so they're they're very much at odds with that sense of wonder and that sense of joy just actually to use one example even even the modern boarding process sort of divorces us from a, a very exciting and real sense of scale that we used to have boarding aircraft and actually boarding the aircraft from the tarmac, where we would sort of take in the, the, the sort of amazing scale of this machine. Like, look at this thing. This thing is going to be flying in the, in the air, and I'm going to be on board. And we've lost track of that. And part of the reason we've lost track of that is because of some of these dehumanizing processes that, that have found their way into airports and also the, the, the everyday lives of airlines. That sense of wonder that Devin Liddell describes is something that was afforded to many of the people working in aviation here in Seattle. They had lives of travel and airline experiences that very few could ever dream of, giving them big perspectives on the world around them. One such person is Jeff Casey, a former airline executive and brand expert. It's actually quite tough to catch Casey in any one city for too long. On the day he invited me into his West Seattle home, he had just flown in from Palm Springs, California. I wanted to show you this room because this is kind of the uh, this is kind of the history room. This is this is where I stuffed all these models from all these different jobs over the years. Born and raised in Alaska, Casey worked his way up the ranks at Seattle-based Alaska Airlines, where he retired as an executive a number of years ago. 
He then went on to work at Boeing, where a marketing job took him around the globe, visiting just about every major airline you have and haven't heard of. I was thinking today, you know, there's been this cyclone in Mozambique, and they were talking about all the damage in Biera, and I thought, well, I was in Biera for a couple of days, and then because I was in Maputo working with um, Mozambique Airlines a couple of times, but you know, the probably the, the cross-section of all those carriers is the the graciousness and the hospitality. Generally, that holds true, mm -hmm. especially with national carriers. Yeah. There's a real sense of pride. When Casey talks about pride, he's quick to suggest it has to come from an understanding of an airline's heritage, which most airline employees don't seem too clued into today. Pan American had this first across the Atlantic, first across the Pacific, all these heritage things. And even though some of the existing carriers in the U.S. have it, they don't really communicate it to the team. Diminishing awareness of heritage aside, the digital revolution has had a significant effect on air travel as well. While creating great efficiencies when it comes to booking, dispatching aircraft, and fleet management, the human and social side of flying has waned. Casey recalls low-tech, highly social experiences that made all the difference. You know, when I was in Mozambique and I was flying around the country because the airline wanted me to see their outstations, it reminded me of when I was with Alaska Airlines and the station managers were kind of king in town and they kind of knew what was going on and who was doing what and they know everybody that was a good customer by their first name. And so we were flying around the country and the infrastructure is a bit of a challenge, but there's, you know, really high standards and people are very proud of what they do. When it comes to glorifying the golden era, Casey is quick to point out that we're actually in one of our own. You know, people say to me, oh, you know, I miss the golden era of air travel, and I think, well, this is the golden era of air travel for the people who are flying today, because it's never been less expensive, you've never had more choices, you've never had the standard of service available to you on board with, you know, flatbeds and linens and pajamas and choices of meals. The golden era that a lot of people refer to had choppy air and lack of selection and limited space on board and not the kind of speed that you would have. The golden era was a three-hour meal, maybe. And I think it's, it's a little misleading to think of it in that context because really the products today are great. The thing that I think people miss the most is that the human interaction and the delivery, that's kind of missing. I mean, airlines spend so much and invest so much in the hard product and so little in the soft product in trying to motivate individuals to graciousness and courtesy and treating customers with respect. They've sent so many messages that counter that to the staff that they think it's all about saving money and that they're serving the masses and not individuals. And I think that's, that's the Achilles heel today. Even if the hard product outshines the service when it comes to the era we're in today, Casey still gets excited about every flight he takes. In a few days, he'll be off to a holiday in Bali. Ask anyone here they'll tell you airplanes are in their DNA.
growing up here and being around aviation, I had relatives who were flight attendants. I had relatives who were pilots. Lindsay Maxwell is an industrial designer and vice president at Seattle-based design agency Teague. I had relatives who were in the military. I mean, there's so much connection in the community that I grew up in to aviation that you feel like it's in your blood. Maxwell says her Seattle heritage makes her and many colleagues at Teague perfect people to continue on with the company's long legacy of designing interiors for Boeing and airline customers around the globe, including those golden era onboard cocktail lounges that were so innovative half a century ago. Maxwell's colleague, Devin Liddell, has a few of his own ideas on why this place has been such a hotspot for unprecedented innovation in aviation and beyond. Seattle, and the Pacific Northwest in general, is sort of, for whatever reason, the place that categories are reinvented. I mean, everything from software to coffee to air travel, it's all sort of reinvented here. My sense is that maybe actually that there's, that our, our location in the top left corner of the country sort of invites a persona who is willing to sort of, you know, greet the frontier, if you will, and then maybe, maybe all the rain that keeps us indoors, actually it doesn't keep us indoors that, that much, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but the, maybe the gray keeps us focused on some nose downtime maybe that maybe we wouldn't have if we were in San Diego. Be it the gray or not, it's no secret that this city and this region are very proud of the fact that the world wouldn't move about as it does were it not for the dream of a young Bill Boeing and the innovation that he seated on the shores of the Puget Sound. For Monocle, in Seattle, I'm Tristan McAllister. That brings us to the end of this episode of the Golden Age of Aviation with Breitling, chronicling and celebrating all that was best about commercial airline travel in the 50s, 60s and 70s. To find out more about the programme, you can head to monocle.com or subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud and all your other favourite audio sources. This programme was produced by Tom Edwards, Holly Fisher and Tristan McAllister. And I'm Chloe Potter. Join us again in two weeks' time when we'll have a lesson in airport design via the former TWA Flight Centre in New York. Until then, wherever you are and wherever you're headed next, bon voyage.